Welcome to Coach Us, the podcast for hungry web developers. I'm your host, Vincent, and with me is... German Gamboa. For this episode, we're going to be talking about a topic called From Idea to Acquisition, Recipe Box. And with us, we have a guest speaker, Andrew Koslick. And Andrew is a software developer and engineering manager with a love for building independent apps. He was a CEO of a recipe storage app, Recipe Box, before it was acquired by emails.com. He spent the last year at emails, completing integration duties after his acquisition, serving as head of mobile product for emails core product. He currently is working on his next, pro- next project, Secret Stash, a secure content storage app, and Mockingbird 8i, a mock API service that streamlines integration time between front-end and back team, back-end teams. Hopefully I got all that right. <laughs> I botched up some of that as I was saying it. We haven't done an episode in a while either, so it's kind of like refreshing how to say this properly. <laughs> Anyways, I want to give the floor over to you, Andrew, to kind of tell us like more about Recipe Box, kind of like your story as like a software developer. Actually, let's just go back to the, to the main topic. What is Recipe Box? You know, sure. So, Recipe Box is a mobile application and a website that people can use to store their favorite recipes. So, you look on look online, you find recipes from allrecipes.com, Budget Bites, Food Network, all these different sources. You start collecting them together. You know, you might use bookmarks on your on your uh, web browser, but you know, you're not really on your computer, you know, when you're in the kitchen cooking. So, we built an app that lets you collect all those links into one place. What was really cool is that we actually would pull out the recipe from the website when you saved it. So when we went to go cook it, you would just get your ingredients and your recipes, and we tried to streamline the cooking experience for users. We'd also let you do some meal planning. So if you knew you wanted to cook some things during the week, you could queue up those recipes for quick access. And if you wanted to, you could actually pre-purchase your, or not pre-purchase, but you could purchase your ingredients for your recipes through Walmart or Kroger or Amazon Fresh or any of these other online grocery providers. Oh, wow, that's awesome. So you can actually like literally... So so it's, so it's an app that you download on your iPhone or your your Android phone, and then you can go on to like your favorite your favorite your favorite app your favorite websites. For instance, looking up like, hey, I'm looking for like a recipe to make tikka masala or a recipe to make like pad thai, for instance. And then let's say you find the recipe that you want and you want to save it, you just use your application to save that recipe. So you can look it up later for a different point in time when you're actually cooking yep. it, et cetera. That's, that's exactly right. We had a pretty tight integration into Safari. So we actually built a Safari extension on iOS that would allow you to open up mobile Safari on your phone. You can go to a, a, any website. We would actually detect if there was a recipe on that website and then give you a button just right there in Safari that would let you save straight to recipe box. So you never even had to launch recipe box until you're ready to ready to cook your recipe. What was that like an actual extension or at the Safari part? Is that like an extension through Safari? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a Safari extension and you build them through iOS kind of like you would build like a, it's almost like building an, a, like a watch application, like an Apple watch application or something like that. Right. It's kind of a sub project that you build and it's a Safari extension and you just install it through your Apple settings, your iOS settings and get it turned on. And yeah, it just integrates right into it directly into a web page. That's pretty cool. So I guess question for you, what was the thing that prompted you to want to build a recipe box? Was it the very long stories that you get in front of every single recipe that you ever look up or like what prompted you to want to want to do this? Yeah, it was a little bit of that. So I actually love to cook. I've used a bunch of recipe apps over the years and 
None of them really clicked with me. I didn't find myself using them regularly. I'd use them for maybe a month. Then, you know, eventually you get uninstalled or you know, just <laughs> sit on my dock completely unopened, right? I was actually on paternity leave. Uh, my daughter was born and thought it might be fun just to try to build something that would actually detect and parse out a recipe, right? So I learned about, you know, JSON-LD and XML schemas and found out there's like a standard for how recipes are set up. Thought it might be pretty easy to throw together a parser real quick, just as something to do when my my daughter was napping. They say to sleep when the baby sleeps, but that does not that's not a real thing. <laughs> At least it wasn't for us. So uh, yeah, I spent that time building that parser. Worked out really well, and I showed it to my buddy that I worked with at a previous company, and he said, "Hey, this is really cool. I, I love to cook too. I'd be happy to build an iOS app around this, and yeah, maybe we can get something to market and just see if people use it." So over the next month or two, we built a, a really stripped down MVP and threw it up on the app store. And you know, within a couple of months, Recipe Box was born. Sweet. That's pretty cool. I'm curious, like how did you do the the part? Like just from a tech, I don't know how technical we want to get, but for me, I'm like, I like the I like the nerdy side of things. I'm really curious how you parsed it, like how you did the recipe parsing, because that seems kind of painful. Yeah, it, it was painful. It, it starts out pretty easy. So a lot of blogs, they actually have some metadata that's up in their header, right? That kind of describes what that data is that's on the page. There's an organization that that puts out a website. You go to schema.org and you can actually see there are like defined schemas or schemas for different types of things that you might want to represent digitally. And recipes were one of those. And so when we actually built out the parser, we would pull down, you know, when, when you send the URL over to us, we'll grab all the HTML, right? We'll pull out all the header tags. We'll look and see if there's a JSON LD that's specific about a recipe, right? If it exists, we'll parse out the recipe. If it doesn't exist, we'll actually check to see if there's something called a how-to. So a recipe is technically a, a how-to. So just recipe is just like one more step further down the schema tree. If that exists, we'll pull that. If none of that exists, we check to see if there's any XML data that matches that schema. Hopefully that exists. If that doesn't exist, then we actually start kind of just trying a bunch of different things to figure out where a recipe might be. We'll look for classes that are used by popular WordPress plugins, right? Um, we'll search paragraph tasks that are, are, sorry, paragraph tags that would be labeled with like the class ingredient, right? It's that's a you know most likely that's an ingredient that we can parse out. So we start high up with known data formats, and then the further down we go looking for something, right? It starts to get a little hairy. And then at the very end, if we didn't find anything, then we just save the link and we don't even bother trying to parse anything out. But over uh, the course of a couple of years, you know, people would reach out to us and they'd say, hey, this recipe didn't parse or, or I had trouble you know, saving this recipe. So just over time, we started to identify those edge cases that we couldn't, you know, we just weren't popping up when we were initially testing. And so we'll just add more and more edge case checks and everything and just make the parser stronger and stronger. And I think we got to the point where we were parsing probably around 95% of our recipes accurately. But it was a it was a tough, pretty, pretty tough problem. So that's pretty cool. I wonder like how they say if you can just kind of like just chuck it into like chat GPT and tell me, give me the recipe. <laughs> yeah, that I wonder exist, how accurate. No, yeah, it did exist when we when we did this, but yeah, it's I've actually done that and it's chat GPT's done a pretty good job of it. One of the other challenges that we actually had was parsing out ingredient components. 
So if you look at a, at a recipe, right, it might say that you're using one cup of sugar, right? It's really important, especially for our grocery integrations, to identify what the ingredient is. So we had to figure out how to parse out the one to say that, you know, this is how, how much of something you need. The cup is the unit of measurement, right? And then sugar would be the actual ingredient. So we built a, a kind of a string parser that would take the full string, look for known abbreviations and known words, and start kind of extracting those strings out from the full uh, ingredient list. And then whatever you were left over with would be like the ingredient name. So we know that like if you have an ingredient that starts with a number, that number is most likely going to be how much you need of something, right? So we would pull out the one. That would leave us with the string cup sugar, right? And then we would know that we have like cup or tablespoon or teaspoon or whatever. We'd look for one of those in the string. And if we found that, we would pull it out, right? And that would leave us with sugar. When we get down towards the end of our our parser, right, we're hopefully left with what's the name. It, it didn't always work, and it was definitely a really tough problem to solve because you're it's, it's it's basically it's a natural language parsing kind of problem. Mm-hmm. So we got pretty good accuracy with it, but there, we definitely see some funky things that people put in their ingredient names, you know, and definitely some weird uh, string formats that we might not recognize. That, that was kind of a tough problem to solve. Yeah, it's pretty cool. What was like the the weirdest edge case you've had to deal with that, you know, someone came up to you and said, Hey, I'm trying to parse this one website. And you're like, okay, let's go write a parser for it or an edge case. And what was, or if you have, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really it's just a matter of when people are using either non like non-standard sort of string format, you know, they might say like, this is one, one tablespoon of chives and then use like, Open parenthesis, open parenthesis, chopped, comma, diced, closed parenthesis, something else, closed parenthesis, right? And there's no reason for the ingredient to be written like that, but that's just how the author wrote it, right? And so in instances like that, it's just like, we do our best, but that's how you end up with the ingredient, you know, chopped chives parenthesis or whatever, because it just didn't, it just couldn't fully <laughs> parse it, right? Misspellings, I mean, we definitely want to make sure that we're catching those, right? So T-E-E-S-P-O-O-N for teaspoon or whatever. Yeah, it's just a lot of just weird ways that people have, have written things, written written ingredients. Interesting. Cool. Well, I guess to back out from getting too technical for a second and starting to nerd out about those little edge cases, I guess I have a question for you, Andrew. So we, we, when you started this, were you considered to be yourself more of a product person or more mm-hmm. like into like the code side of things? Definitely, probably more code. I, I'd served as a head of product capacity at my pre- previous job but it was kind of a weird hybrid engineering thing it's one of the startups where your roles kind of change around a lot as the organization mm-hmm. evolves and everything right so i was never doing true product work but i had always had a i had always wanted to get into that something that i've always kind of adhered to is if you want to learn a skill or you want to develop a skill you, you've got to really try to create the environment for you to actually learn that thing right mm-hmm. so you know a while back i want to learn how to build leadership teams and so i started doing meetups to start trying to do that right and so you start learning how to build a leadership team and how to manage people and doing all those sort of that sort of stuff right i wanted to learn product skills but i wasn't really getting as much of that in my day-to-day work and so yeah i mean recipe box was a good way for me to start kind of flexing those skills and figuring out if it's something that i really wanted to do it's really interesting because it's like when you're when you're building your own product, you're not just doing the development work, right? You're you've got to do all the customer support, and you've got to figure out the marketing stuff, and you've got to figure out 
all your site reliability engineering stuff that you don't really want to deal with. And like, you really are wearing, I mean, it's cliche, but it's like, you really wear, are wearing so many different hats when you're, you're kind of building an indie app, right? That was really what was neat about when, after our acquisition was able to, I was actually able to focus more on like a product related skill set, you know, at my last job, which was, which was a lot of fun. I learned a lot there. So yeah, and from that experience, what would you like, what would you say you ended up liking more, like the tech side of things or the product side of things? Man, it's, that's honestly something I'm still trying to figure out, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I love product. I mean, honestly, it's, it's been great. My skill set is on the engineering side, and I've done engineering for years and years, right? So it's tough because I, I was looking for different jobs that might be in product, but on paper, I don't look like a product manager, right? Because I'm not running this portfolio for five years, 10 years, or whatever. So I'm kind of slipping back into the engineering management sort of things. At the end of the day, I've got a balance to feed and all that, right? And so I got to make mm-hmm. sure I'm I'm kind of sticking in my skill set. But I mean, at heart, I'm definitely a, a product person. I, I love building things, and and I definitely get more involved in or more interested in the business and the usability and the the end user problems that we're solving. Not so much like code, especially these days. When I write code, it's really just more of like. I'm writing to solve a particular problem, and that problem is usually more interesting to me than the technical problem that we're actually solving, right? Fair enough. So, a curiosity, from the time you guys started writing recipe box, like how like what was the time frame between start and like your first users that were in yourselves or family? Yeah, I mean, we got a beta up probably within a month. and then i'd I'd say I mean we started it end of summer, early fall of I think 2018 or 2019. And then by that November, we were live. The first version of Recipe Box looked nothing like what's out there now. It was definitely a very, very, very streamlined MVP, stripped down version of an app, right? But we got something up and we wanted to get something up that was pretty quick. It was important to us that we uh, didn't spend a lot of months kind of spinning on a project. And we were doing this at the time, part-time anyway. It was like, we would sit down at nine o'clock at night and start working, right? And then we work until about one or two in the morning, and then we go to work the next day and wake up and then you know, go to work and then start the whole thing over, you know, the next night. Mm-hmm. And we did that for about three years, right? So it was a, it was a lot, but yeah. So wait, yeah. how many people was how many people was it working on Recipe Box? Just you and someone else? It was just myself and my partner Tom. Uh, mm-hmm. towards the end, we brought in our friend Aaron to help us out with some de- design work. And around the time that we brought her in, shortly after that is when we got approached about the acquisition. But yeah, it was just myself and Tom for a couple of years and just working closely together every night. And he would build out the uh, iOS app and then we built an Android app with Flutter. And then I was working on all of our APIs and the website, and customer support and everything else that needed to get done. To get this thing out the door, yeah, I remember like on our like on the on the Slack channel we have for old devs, like you were you kept sharing like little like snippets of what you were doing throughout the time. I think the funniest one you shared, I think you forgot to in, make an index and in, like your Mongo database at some point, and that kind of crashed you or something. I can't remember. It was like index related. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, it's it's one of those things where I was definitely kind of learning some different skills and everything, right, as we were building this out and. We knew that as we were building things, we were, we were trying to get this thing out because, again, it was just myself and my partner. Yeah. So it was more important that we build something and just get it out, right? And then we can figure out the problems. And so as we grew, there were some scalability issues that we kind of ran into. And yeah, I realized at one point I was like, oh, I'm running this massive query, but this thing I'm querying is when it's pushed out to production, right? That, that 
file or that uh, property wasn't indexed. And so it was just like dragging the database down, right? So you slap that index in and then all of a sudden all those all those problems are solved, right? But yeah, we saw, I mean, we were, we were definitely, when we were building this out, we were trying to make sure that we were focused on getting features complete. And then we would solve the scalability problems as they kind of presented themselves, you know, live, which... You know, again, when you're running it with two people, you don't have the benefit of being able to do performance testing and all that. And we kind of grew slowly over time, too. So it's not like we push this thing out and all of a sudden we have a million users or something like that, right? So, yeah, we just solve those problems as they popped up. That's pretty cool. So I guess, I don't know if it's been the same for you, Vincent, when I tried to make a side project or something, mm-hmm. I always have a very difficult time. Like, like you have like this idea in your head, so you kind of stop fighting this thing out and you realize, oh crap, this is a lot of features. And even if you, so like, how do you make the decision of like knowing what to cut? Like, how, how did you guys go about the process of knowing what to cut, what not to cut, what might be actually useful, what might not be useful? Yeah, it was a lot of debate. So we actually used a, so I actually wrote a product document, right? That we Mm -hmm. used as our guiding light for while we were building it. And it wasn't always, we we didn't always keep it up to date. We tried to at least make sure the high level ideas were there, but at least the beginning of the project, we really just went into Google doc and wrote down like, here's what we want this to be. There's a really good example of a product document that product hunt put out a couple of years ago. And we use that as the, the basis for that. And so we wrote this product doc and then we actually went through and highlighted in a different color which of the items on this doc are the things that we think can get done quickly and will actually solve the core problem that we were trying to solve right so for us it was we wanted people to be able to save recipes and quickly access them in the website so anything that wasn't related to that got pushed out and so one of the big things that we wanted to be able people to be able to do is actually search our database of recipes and we, you know, we had all these ideas for what we wanted to do with search, and we decided, you know, we don't need this right now. Right now, we're just going to focus on getting people to actually put recipes even into the database because there's nothing really to search right now anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And so we cut the search feature out. We cut meal planning out really early, and then we figured, hey, if we start getting users and the people start asking for these, we'll start layering them back in. But yeah, it was a lot of going back and forth with Tom and trying to figure out would we both use this feature? We only want to build this feature because one person wants it, right? And just really just looking at the whole product and understanding, you know, our, our, we want to look at the whole product, make sure we were focusing on the things that, that were really addressing the core problem that we were trying to solve. Yeah. Did you guys take feature requests from your users? Yeah. I mean, we listen to feature requests wherever they come from, right? Um mm-hmm. For a while there, we would actually take requests from users and then we would categorize them basically into like a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And so over time, we could see when people were, were requesting the same things over and over again. And then that would kind of feed into our, our road mapping process where we'd say, okay, you know, that last month we had 30 people who reached out and said that they want this feature on top of meal planning, right? So we'd be like, okay, cool. I think that's something that's going to be good to build. And then we, we would build that out. At the time, we weren't really focused on generating revenue or anything like that, right? So, you know, we were able to just really focus on building what's what's the best experience for our users, right? And that was kind of the guiding light that we used to determine, you know, what we would put into the app. Sweet. That's pretty cool. I, I, have, I have a question. It's like allergy season, and I keep, like, having, like, my nose tickle the crap out of me. So just one second. Are <laughs> you good? So how how did you get what what sort of marketing strategies did you use to promote Recipe Box in terms of like getting it out to the public, getting your first beta users, getting adoption effectively? Because 
that is one of the most challenging parts of building a product. It's not necessarily engineering, it's the marketing. As yeah. Well. So beta testing was interesting because I mean, really, we really did rely on friends and family. I started realizing that we had something when my wife was actually using the app regularly and she's a bit of a Luddite, right? She doesn't really like tech stuff. She doesn't use apps, but she was using ours like every day. And so it was like, okay, cool. Like we're connecting, we've kind of built something, we're solving a problem, right? Most of our beta testers were people that we knew, friends of friends that we knew would like to use the app. I mean, I don't know if you guys have run a beta test before, but it's it's kind of tough because it's like you have to get people testing, you have to get their feedback, right? A lot of people will say, oh, I'd love to test this. And then they never actually do, right? So it was a lot of just counting people and making sure they're using it. And then, you know, trying to make sure as many people got into the beta as possible, right? So we can try to get some people to use it. We weren't too focused, though, on on the beta test. I mean, we, we were really using that as a way to do final sort of QA and just make sure that nobody had any major issues that were cropping up, right? Marketing was a challenge because the original version of Recipe Box was sold for, so we had a, a free, it was a free app, and then you could pay $5 and you could unlock our pro features, right? It was a one-time purchase. It was not a SaaS thing, which was our probably the biggest sort of mistake that we made in our pricing and everything like that. But what made that challenging is that the most money that we could ever make from a user was $5. And only some percentage of our users were actually going to convert to paying users, right? So let's say 20% of users would convert to a paying user, right? So that meant that for every 25 people that we brought in, right, only five of those people would actually convert to somebody who paid, which means that we'd only pay, you know, we'd only make $20 before Apple's 30% cut, right? So our acquisition costs, our customer acquisition costs had to be very low. We weren't able to do paid marketing or anything like that to send people to the app because we just simply weren't making enough money to justify spending the money to actually pull people in to hope that they convert, right? Down the line, and more recently, I learned that and this is the reason why SaaS products exist, right? You have that recurring income. You can definitely make a little bit more money off of each user. I, I definitely undersold or undervalued the app as well when we sold it, right? $5 was it felt like a lot of money to me. And in retrospect, it was not a lot of money, right? Like people are, they're willing to spend more money on services that are useful than maybe you might think. And if somebody really relies on something, right, they're willing to pay for it. So recipe box today is actually a subscription service. And so there's a monthly, there's a monthly or yearly charge to it. And we're seeing a lot of people are converting, you know, and a lot of people are, are paying for the app. So how we started doing that, you know, at those price points earlier, you know, it might be a different story now, but yeah, just trying to figure out that that pricing structure. So we really were focused on word of mouth, right? So we would prompt users and say, hey, review the app, right? We, if somebody saved three recipes, then we'd say, if you're enjoying Recipe Box, give us five stars on the app store, right? Start dr- kind of driving that up. We also gave people the ability to share recipes within the app. And so like, I could send you my favorite tikka masala recipe but it's going to be recipebox.com on it. We'll have like a link to go download the app. And then we also just had a explicit share the app with your friends button and they would send those that app over to people. So we really were relying on word of mouth. By the time we sold the app, we had grown to about 160,000 registered users. And I think of those like 50,000 or so were considered monthly active. So they were using the app every month. That's it's a not, pretty good number. Yeah, it's not... Google numbers, but it was 
it was healthy. Cool. Did you like, I'm just curious, did you guys ever keep metrics on like how many people, like if you had like any power users that you can notice like saving a ton of recipes or like, did you ever dive into like the actual number, like the actual numbers of how people were using the app? Yeah, we actually had to put limitations because we did not build pagination into our Git requests so that when you pull down your list of recipes, we figure somebody might have at max 100, maybe 200 recipes, right, in their accounts. But we found that there were some users who had like 3,000 recipes oh, in their gosh. account. And these were not like these were not like spam accounts. These were like, we reached out to these users and we said, hey, are you a real user? Do you actually have this many recipes? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I love this app. I use it all the time, right? But um, why? You're never going to actually be able to cook 3,000 recipes. Yeah. Well, we had, always, we had a lot of weird kind of use cases. So we actually, we had some people we talked to and they were actually fitness trainers. And so mm-hmm. they were using it to hold recipes that they would send to their clients, right? To say, here's your meal plan or whatever, like you cook these recipes. We had one user, she was actually a private chef on yachts. And so she mm. would be out at sea and she wouldn't have internet connection. And so she used recipe box as a way of running her kitchen on the yacht. And so whenever she would need to cook something on the yacht, she would pull up recipe box, right? So she would have a database of 3000 recipes that she would use. And instead of bringing a bunch of cookbooks or whatever, and if somebody said on the boat they wanted tikka masala and they had the ingredients in the kitchen, right? She could whip it up. And so there were just a lot of strange little edge cases like that where people had way more recipes than I think I'd ever cook in a lifetime. Yeah, I've always found that curious. When you make an app, you obviously have like the in your mind, like the typical persona you expect for like the typical user you expect. But it's always cool to hear about those little stories of like, oh, I didn't think it was actually going to be used this way. There's always someone that uses it like in a weird in a way that you don't expect and it causes an issue or it's just interesting to watch. Yeah, we ended up having to actually limit how much how many recipes we'd return just because we we couldn't justify the amount of time it would take to rework everything to take a paginated approach, right? To to returning mm-hmm. those those requests because they just we weren't the return on investment just would have been too low. So yeah, we had to there's just a lot of like weird things that we kind of ran into. But yeah, you're right. Like sometimes people just use the app in a way that you never would have, you know, imagined, right? We even had people just sharing, like, they would just save, like, not even recipes, but just, like, technique articles, right? Like, here's how to dice, and here's how to saute, or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah how would just, you, part, would you um, parse those, or just save it, like, a page? No, we would just, just save those, those, like, a, yeah, just save them, like, a URL, and when somebody opens it up, we just open up the original website. So, basically, a bookmark? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. pretty cool. What would you say is, has been the hardest challenge that you've learned through this experience of building recipe box, like whether it's something you've learned working through like the development side or on the product side or working with a partner, like what would you say is the most, the thing that you learned the most from building recipe box? Yeah. Hands down. It's, it's don't be afraid to charge and don't be afraid to start high and you're working way low. Right. Pricing feels like something that you need to get right right away, and it's really not. When you start looking at your user base's cohorts, and so you, you look at them not as like a giant mass of people, but you just look at like these are the 500 people who signed up this week, right? What, what are they doing, and then how are they converting into different you know customer types, right? And so you can say, hey, for this month, we're going to charge $30 a month for the app. And then you look and see how many people you know, signed up or you might do an A-B test and say, 
hey, we're going to charge half the people who are coming in $50 and we're going to charge half the people $25, right? And we're going to see how, what's the percentage of people that convert at each price point. I definitely think I would have, you know, started charging, charged more money, you know, done a, a SaaS instead of a one-time payment. Those one-time payments are tough, especially when they're so low. It's difficult to build a business around that, right? I mean, ultimately, it's what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to survive as a business. So building something and then not being afraid. It's really weird because I have a, I, I, I had a really weird aversion to charging money just because I was like, why would somebody ever pay for something that I built? Right. Cause I mean, I know that I'm some guy in a messy office right now, <laughs> kind of something out. Right. And so I'm like, why would somebody give me money for something I built? But I mean, only ultimately it comes down to, we were building something that was useful for people and people are willing to pay for solutions to their real problems. Right. That's kind of one of the aversions I have to a lot of products that are out right now is it just feels like a lot of things are trying to solve problems that don't exist. And so if you build something that actually solves a real problem for somebody, like there is a price point for that and you can, you know, you can charge for that. And, and ultimately, if you're charging more money and it's fewer users, but you're still converting them and you can build a business around it, it doesn't matter that much, right? Like it's better to kind of maybe service fewer, fewer users at a higher price point than you know, a million people at a $2 price point, right? Mm-hmm. Did you did you have, when you converted that pricing from like that $5 one-time payment over to that subscription model, did you have a lot of user feedback against it? Or, I mean, I'm sure that must have been like a drastic no, change for many users. No, primarily because we didn't, we grandfathered in everybody, right? So if you're a, if you're an existing user, we weren't going back and then saying, hey, you need to pay up more, right? We kept it focused on new user acquisition and and running the tests like that. That way we did we was specifically for that reason, right? We didn't want to we wouldn't we, we didn't want to anger our old users or anything like that. And like that was the agreement we made. You pay us five dollars, you get these features, right? We don't want to break that agreement. And so we were really focused on those new cohorts of users that were coming in. Have you have, like regarding cohorts, have you noticed like certain waves of cohorts during certain times of the year, or has it been more or less like consistent in terms of user acquisition? Like, or has it just been like spiking around certain times of the year? Maybe like Christmas, for instance. You know, holidays, people love cooking. Yeah, thanks, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Thanksgiving is like the big time of year for us. I mean, that's when everybody's starting to prep for these giant dinners, right? You're the yearly time that you roast a turkey and pretend like you've been doing it forever right yeah it's we definitely saw a huge user spikes around really was around the holidays where food was involved right we saw a lot in the summer as well especially as people are kicking off grilling season right a lot more outdoor recipes and you could see you can actually see the searches for like grilling recipes going up in the spring the summer as the weather gets warm and then like the soup recipes start coming along once things get cooler right um <laughs> and we would actually try to follow those trends so that you know, by the time, by, you know, we, we eventually did build a search feature into recipe box. And then we also built like a dashboard where we would actually push recipes forward for you. And so we would say, hey, you know, you've got Easter coming up, you've got Christmas coming up, you've got spring or whatever. And we would start trying to make sure that that dashboard was refreshing with recipes that were relevant for whatever the trend was at that time. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed oh. any interesting? Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say have you noticed oh. any interesting just recipe trends as a whole? Like, you know, it's like, hey, wow, a lot of people really cook this meal. Then I didn't even expect this to be popular in this area or, you, you know, just just in general. Like, have you ever 
any like insightful, interesting like user things you've noticed besides like the whole like oh there's there's you know someone on the yacht that cooks that uses recipe box for these purposes or personal trainer, but just like as a whole as a general trend, do you have you have you noticed any particular recipes that just like people just always go back to? I'm just curious. I like cooking too, so I'm just. <laughs> Yeah, so we didn't do too much, at least not breaking down into like regional or anything like that to figure out what people were looking at, just because it just didn't really serve our core business. But we certainly saw, I mean, when we dig around in the database and everything, a lot of the basics were the things that people were looking for, right? So chocolate chip cookies, birthday cake, lasagna, spaghetti, right? Like a lot of things that weren't really like, you know, tikka masala might be on there, but like clock near might not be right mm-hmm. like it's uh, we just saw a lot of people that were saving the same sorts of i, I don't want to say basic recipes but like your staple recipes right that, that's really what a lot of people were saving did you have lots of variations of like the same well i, mean, I guess you would right like let's say a tikka masala but like multiple sites have this have different recipes but they're following effectively the same ingredient list right for the most part to see a lot of variations of the same thing yeah yeah i mean definitely right i mean everybody just we, we tikka masala is a great example of something where it's like you go online you search for tikka masala and you're going to get 500 different recipes right and that's a popular enough dish that all 500 of those recipes are honestly probably in the recipe box database now right, right. yeah we definitely uh yeah, you, you you would see a lot of that. One of the things that we actually want to do, and and we never actually were able to get around to it, was we wanted to actually give priority to. We we were trying to figure out a way to measure like the authenticity and the quality of a recipe, right? And so, if you look at so if you look at look at so if you look at an Indian recipe, so looking like looking at tikka masala, right? Mm-hmm. You know what in 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 an Indian recipe, you might see an ingredient listed as coriander. And what that is, is actually like coriander leaves, which is actually cilantro, right? Mm-hmm. So coriander leaves and cilantro are, are the same thing. Somebody don't at me or anything, but I'm pretty positive those are, <laughs> those are the same thing. Yep. I just learned that if they are the same thing. Are yeah. They, so, <laughs> so, so for me, I would say, okay, yeah, because I'm pretty sure the coriander seeds are actually like the seeds of a cilantro plant. Huh. Yes, and it so, is. Corian- coriander is also known as cilantro. Okay, cool. Google right, that. Wow. That's, what I, that's what I thought. All right, <laughs> wow. good, good, good. I, I got to flex a little food knowledge. My, See, I did my, learn some my stuff. Blown. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's my point, right? And so, cilantro, coriander are the same thing. Now, if I pull up a tikka masala recipe and the ingredient in there is cilantro, right? That's an indication to me that the person who wrote that probably hasn't cooked a lot of Indian food, right? Maybe their background's not. You know, they don't have a lot of experience cooking Indian food. They're just throwing a tikka masala recipe up on their blog because that's what their users are asking for. As opposed to a tikka masala recipe where that ingredient is listed as coriander, right? And so we we never got around to doing it, but we did want to start looking at sort of regional differences and names of ingredients and how ingredients are prepped, right? To try to give an indication of whether or not that recipe could be deemed as like higher quality, right? And so that's one of the things I really noticed as we were kind of digging into that space is some of the blogs had higher quality recipes or less authenticate uh, less authentic recipes than you might find for some of the lesser known blogs, but that are a little bit more targeted for those specific audiences, right? Uh, unfortunately, it was just, it was something really important to us that we did, but we just were never able to 
get the time and the resources to actually do that. And it's, it's a tough problem to solve, right? So hopefully in the future, you know, something like that can get implemented. Cool. So I guess if we were kind of moving down the story of like recipe box from the time you started, all the stuff that happened while you built it, all those challenges, and then comes to the time of like the acquisition, how was that process for you? Like what, what like were you actually trying to like get acquired? It was like a random opportunity that came up. No, it was it was random. I mean, it was definitely a very lucky kind of thing. It's so we actually were contacted by emails through our it wasn't a feedback form, but we had like a feedback email address that people could reach mm-hmm. out to us, right? That's how we solicited a lot of user feedback. And I, I received an email from somebody at emails, and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's spam. And I deleted it. <laughs> and so I actually, we would meet, I would meet we, we, weekly with my team, with Tom and Aaron. And I brought it up and I was like, hey, this is like a weird email I got. Like, would you ever be interested in selling this? Like, if somebody actually like, came around. And they were like, yeah, I mean, if the right offer came, like, why not, you know? So I went back. My gut just told me, okay, let me go figure out, you know, who these people were. So I went back and I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's like a legit company. You know, like, so I reached back out and we went back and forth a few times and it seemed like a pretty good fit, right? So we said, hey, you know, we can at least move to the next step and let's get an offer on the table and we'll kind of figure out what to do. So they came back with an initial offer and... You know, we knew there was some negotiation that needed to happen, but we we're like, okay, this is like a real thing. My partner and I, we agonized over whether or not we wanted to sell this thing. I mean, it was honestly one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. We played through every scenario that we possibly could. Just if we sold it and we never touched it again, like how would we feel about that, right? Is there opportunity cost here, Like, right? Like, do we see a way for us to build a business out of this on our own that maybe would last a little bit longer? I lost so much sleep. It was crazy. My poor wife, it was, it was this December of 2021, 2020, 2021 was one of those years. My poor wife, she had to deal with me, the roller coaster stuff. Oh, we're going to sell this. It's going to be awesome to being like, oh my God, this is awful. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, it was just like, we're up and down, up and down. Right. It was, it was tough. But, you know, Tom and I, we, we, ha- we had a lot of really open conversations. We had a lot of, and, and Aaron as well. We just, we're really just kind of talking about our fears and and what we were worried about and everything and different scenarios and how they would play out. And ultimately we decided, okay, like let's go ahead and move forward with this. So the team from emails, they flew down here. We met up for a, a lunch to kind of hash things out. They put an offer on the table for us. I wasn't quite where we wanted it to be. So Tom and I took a walk and, kind of talk through like hey what do we want to you know is this what we want to do do we want to ask for a little bit more or what right we kind of came up with what we thought would be a fair offer we went back to the table and we said hey we're looking for x and y and they came back a little bit less and we were like okay that sounds great like that's right along the lines of what we were thinking so we did a little you know quick handshake on it and said okay cool so what we're gonna do is get the paperwork going they prepped a, an official offer for us sent it over it was like a letter of intent, basically, that mm-hmm. said that, hey, we have intent to purchase this, you know, purchase your assets. Please don't go and shop this around, right? We're moving forward with this. So that's when we kicked off our due diligence process. And if you haven't been through due diligence, it is intense. Due diligence is basically the opportunity for the acquiring company to look at everything about your company and the business that they're looking at acquiring. So they're going to check your profit, your, your P&L statements for every year, right? For the last few years, they're going to look at your tax documents. They're going to look at your analytics to make sure the things that you're saying are true. 
they really get to look at every single thing and, and look at the business under a microscope and decide whether or not it's something that they want to acquire. That's the part where a lot of acquisitions actually fall. You know, they'll take a look and say, okay, well, maybe the user base isn't as strong as what they were thinking or the tech, you know, they do code reviews, but the tech's just not there. You know, this isn't really, you know, good. We were able to get through our due diligence process without much issue. It was definitely the longest part of the process. And I spent a lot of nights kind of pulling financial documents together and analytics numbers and, you know, figuring all that stuff out, right? But once due diligence was through and the team decided to go ahead and move forward with the acquisition, they prepped a whole bunch of paperwork, a bill of sale, asset purchase agreements. So there's a bunch of different documents. Their attorneys went back and forth with our attorneys, and then we got a packet of papers to sign. And we signed them, and a couple hours later, we had a wire transfer, and I slept super well that night because <laughs> I had not been sleeping well up until that point. As part of our acquisition, it was kind of an aqua hire. So we negotiated the sale of the assets. And then separately, we negotiated our employment contracts. So the intent was to bring us on to their team for a little while, oversee integrating Recipe Box into their core product, and then supporting their team as sees fit. And so Tom and I did that up until the end of June. And then unfortunately, just we the state of the market and everything right now, there just wasn't a lot of extra you know, money in the company and everything. Their core, the core business wasn't quite doing as well as they were hoping, you know, at that point. And so there were a few of us that had to get let go. So it's kind of where we are now. And, you know, Tom and I are working on a few projects and see if we can do it again. Sweet. Just out of curiosity, because I always see this happen. So is the whole like, like staying on working for the company that acquired you like a common thing or was it just like special to you guys? Yeah, I, I think especially when you're, when 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 an asset's being acquired to be integrated into the core product, right, it makes sense to keep the team there. Part of the reason why they wanted to do that as well was because they really did want Tom and I to be working for the company. And if, you know, the market didn't go the way that it went, and if customer acquisition costs right now are just through the roof because of all the privacy mm-hmm. stuff that Apple did, right? So, so Apple essentially cut back a lot of privacy on the iOS devices, which kept data from being fed up to Facebook, which was being used by a lot of small businesses to drive traffic toward their businesses, right? So without having that money there, or sorry, without having that data there to do good targeting, right, for acquiring users, you have to cast a wider net to try to collect users, which is more expensive. Yeah. And so it's unfortunately, just the acquisition costs over the last couple of years have just skyrocketed. It was way more expensive to acquire people than it used to be, right? And so it just just didn't work out but yeah but i think it's that's relatively common i mean at least coming on for a year or so or six months and just doing the acquisition and do the integration and getting it all set up i think that's pretty common so that's pretty cool go ahead Vince. sorry yeah was it was it weird going through that transition now that you and tom both were your own boss and then all of a sudden you have someone above you as your boss and you're just like oh wait i'm just we're just employees that the bigger company now. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it was a, that was a struggle at first. It, it took some time and it took some trust building and everything with the acquiring team, right? Before I finally kind of eased up on that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you're selling, right? Like, even if you had a vision for it, whoever's acquiring you, they also have a vision for it. And after you sign that paperwork, it's their vision, not yours, right? That's something I had to come to terms with pretty quickly. 
and I and I did, you know. I mean, ultimately, it was fine. Like, but it was definitely a struggle at first, especially when you're um, kind of have conflicting ideas of the best thing for a user versus the best thing for the business. And you know, ultimately, like when you're not the final decision maker and you're used to that being that person, right? That's tough. But you know, you just kind of understand your role and and you know your position that you're in now. It's like, yeah, like this is this is not my decision to make and. You learn very quickly. I mean, it's a good career skill, too, is that even if you don't agree with the decisions being made, you should still be able to move forward and execute it and do that. Because ultimately, if that's what leadership team wants to do, right, like you've got to support that and do that. And so I I learned those lessons, you know, especially when that was my baby and now it's not really mine anymore. Right. That's definitely a there's a struggle there. And it's it's tough now. Even now, it's like I'm not working on it day to day. And so it's um, or even in the evenings, really, right? It's like, I'm completely hands off with it now. And it's, it's just a very strange feeling for sure. Yeah, it's like a loss of lifestyle almost, or it's like you're working on it every day. And then even when it got acquired, and then all of a sudden, you're you can't touch it anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's even like a lot of like muscle memory stuff. So like, even now I'm working on a project today, and I'm like going to deploy stuff. And I'm like, I'm typing in recipe box instead of, you know, secret stash. And so it's just like, it's just a lot of stuff that I was always doing that's kind of just integrated into my day to day that I'm having to like, stop doing right. It's like, it's like a breakup. It's basically like a breakup. (laughs) Sort of. I, I think that's all the questions I have. German, do you have any questions? Yeah. No, that kind of answers. I was, I was curious about the whole, like, I imagine it was super, those, was it like a few months or a few weeks, the whole like acquisition process? It was a few, it was a couple of months, but it was a very, like, a couple of months was a very fast acquisition time. I mean, they were like <laughs> eager to get it done quickly. So we had first contact, I think in November, they came down and visited the week of Christmas. I remember it being that week. And then we had closed by February. So from the time we sat down and said, yes, we're going to do this to the time that we closed, it was only about two months. And so we had to, I mean, it's, it was a lot of, I mean, every night was just getting through due diligence and giving as much info to them as they could. And they had to take a look at it, do code reviews. I mean, we moved very quickly on it. But, you know, ultimately, I mean, it's a lot of people ask if, are you happy you sold it or are you not happy you sold it or whatever, right? And so ultimately, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm thrilled that I did that. It's, it, it's definitely not like, I'm not going to sit on a boat someplace and, you know, never have to work again or anything like that. Right. But having an acquisition under my belt, I feel like it was very validating for myself and, you know, how I feel about my ideas and being able to build something that's useful for people. Right. It was a big thing. I mean, a lot of people kind of dream about building something and selling it. And so it's like, definitely I've done that. Like it's pretty, it's a pretty cool thing. You know, it's still, even to this day, like I feel weird saying it or talking about it or whatever. Cause it's like, you don't want to be like bragging like, Oh, Hey, I did this thing, you know, but it's, it's cool, man. Yeah. It's really cool. But now I'm like, it kind of, it kind of skews my perspective of work a little bit because now I'm like, well, I did it once. (laughs) Like, can I do it again? Right. And so that's why uh, Tom and I are working on a, a few projects right now. So we've got four projects in the books right now that we're kind of working on. Each one is kind of layering and building on top of the next one. And, or, you know, for the, the previous one is building f- up for the next one. So hopefully, you know, I've got a little bit of runway from the acquisition. So, yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on trying to build some stuff on my own right now. And I'll, I'll see if I can do it again and 
if it looks like it's not making progress in a couple of months, we'll start looking for another job or something, but I'm giving it a real go this time. So we'll see. Sweet. Well, that's all the questions I had. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I love talking about it. I mean, I'll talk about it all day. It's, it's cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little therapeutic too, right? I mean, stuff moves so fast and it's just such a strange thing to have happen that it's like, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting talking about it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that my experience was, you know, the same as what somebody else would go through because everybody's got a, their own experiences when they go through an acquisition or something like that. But I, I feel very lucky that we were able to go through that process and, and very, and, you know, despite not working for emails now, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for everything that they did for us, you know, bringing us into their team and the skill sets that we learned working with them and they're a fantastic team. And I'm really, really rooting for them and hoping that they can, you know, get everything moving again this year. And I, I think they will. It's, it's, it's exciting. They've got a, a really wicked smart team over there. Sweet. All right. Vincent, are you ready for some dessert? I am. Yeah. Well, what so is this, what we is are a, yes. So we are a food team podcast because me and Vincent at some point both worked in the restaurant industry. So we have this section where we call dessert time, where it's just a little section where we kind of get to talk about what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our lives. It's kind of a free form section. So uh Vincent, do you want to go first and tell us some good news or some news? <laughs> not sure, not sure if they're good or not. <laughs> so I, I, I started Tampa Devs. A year and a half ago, and I also officially retired from it. So everything you've been talking about, Andrew, like everything you're saying, like is exactly how I feel. <laughs> With the exception of the acquisition process, because it's ours is a nonprofit, and I've had to let go of it and give it up to somebody else to take over. And like I, I totally understand what you're saying when it's like it's 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 that person's vision and not my vision, and the visions are different, and it's like we have disagreements over it and. It, it definitely was a very challenging time for me. I've been like two, two or three months out of it now, I think. And it, like, like when I sent in like the, the 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 public release notice, I'm retiring. Like, I tried to do it over a period of time, and it was so hard and so difficult to even have the conversation to begin with. But then I just did it one day, and I literally had panic attacks and I couldn't sleep as I wrote <laughs> my retirement resignation <laughs> and made it public. And I'm just like, I, it, it was not functional. I actually got depressed around that time because it just felt like I was like turning my back to the community I started. So it was very challenging to kind of get over that for me at least. Cause like, I just had like a huge identity loss. It felt like, like it was like, like, you know, like when COVID hit, for instance, like everyone just like has this loss of lifestyle and it's like, oh, I can't go out anymore. Or go work out with friends or whatever. It, it kind of felt like that all over to me again. And I'm just like, yeah, it was definitely hard to get over that and letting go and having them, having my partner also accepting letting go of me as well. So, and, you know, I actually just pulled up meetup yesterday. I'm like, oh, wow, it's doing really well. And I should probably not really get too involved because I'm trying to give that that person breathing space, you know, to let them grow on their own and let them create their own decisions outside of me, not me, not me being the codependency for him to kind of like thrive in his own right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so years ago, I started the Orlando iOS meetup and I ran that for seven years. And then I co-captain code for Orlando for three years, right? And so 
when you spend so much, you know, blood and sweat and tears and everything, and you, you, you do start to tie your identity up in the work that you're doing. I mean, I used to do community work constantly, right? Like I was always at a meetup, they're running one or attending one or doing something and saying that admitting to yourself that something isn't making you happy anymore is really tough because there's a sense of loss, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's important because one, I mean, you've got somebody who's got the energy to come in and, and start building it up, right? And so, you know, the Orlando iOS meetup got, you know, somebody else came in and started running it for us, Code for Orlando. Somebody else came in and started co-captaining it. And when somebody else has that kind of energy to push it forward and they've got a vision, like that's exciting, you know? And it's, I feel like we have a hard time saying like goodbye to stuff and just stopping things, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I, I'm thinking about kind of reevaluating my relationship with social media a lot lately. And like, if you think about this, like, you know, people used to like, you would go to high school and then like when you graduated, you would never see any of those people ever again. Mm-hmm. And so you, know, you might see them at a 10 year or 20 year reunion if you decide to go to those things. But there was a beginning and an end to your relationship with those people and what that part of your life was. And everything is just so ephemeral now and just constant. And like, there aren't really clear, like beginning and ending points in life as much anymore. And I feel like people just because you've always done something, it doesn't mean that you always need to be doing that. Right. And so it's important to understand when something's not bringing you happiness anymore. And it's okay to just like, stop that and if something's changed for for the worse or you just aren't enjoying it or whatever like it's okay to say goodbye and it's okay to stop that like it's a normal it's a normal thing to do right it shouldn't feel bad but it's definitely it's tough but i know that's the thing you've been struggling with for a while so i'm I'm happy to hear that you had retired from it Mm -hmm. uh, congratulations that's a big congratulations because i know it's a a thing to to let go of so yeah it it is (laughs) yeah I, I I'm like even just like distancing my social, myself from social media as well because I was doing so much marketing and I kind of had this like association with like marketing with like Tampa Devs marketing and I don't know if you feel the same way with like recipe box marketing that's like oh you have to do social media marketing for a recipe box but then it like kind of colludes to like you just using social media in general I don't know if you have had that as well but I've I've had to distance myself from social media <laughs> just because of that reason. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was like, I'm sick. I don't get a lot of social media, but like, I don't like, it's a lot of, I, I struggle with it a bit. Cause I feel like a lot of people are trying to build audiences and they're trying to do all this different stuff. And it's like, I, I feel like I get it, but it's just never been like mm-hmm. a thing for me. Like I actually tried doing a little bit of like the build in public and I was trying to like, draw attention to myself on Twitter and being like, whatever. And I was like, this is, I I just don't want this attention. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we probably didn't leverage social media as much as we probably should have with our orgs, but, um, uh, luckily for me, just staying off of social media and I'm not getting sucked in because of stuff like that and trying to run the orgs. I was never very good at it to begin with. Yeah. The whole social media building in public thing, it seems like it's most people that want to like build an audience to sell you something, not that they actually want to share the fact that they're building something. It's either, Man. hey, use the product I build, or here's the course on how to build the product like I did. And the product is just the audience. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole thing feels, the whole thing feels scummy. I've got pretty strong opinions about it, but yeah, it's, I, I, I've, 
it's it's tough it's tough to talk and it's tough to it's just tough to have conversations with people about building stuff without feeling like somebody's also trying to sell you something right and so it's like it's hard to have an honest open dialogue about things without it also being attached to somebody's ebook or whatever right yeah it's 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 frustrating this the state of indie dev right now is is very weird it's a hustle, hustle porn. <laughs> yeah, none of it resonates here. It's like even like you know, I don't, I'm LinkedIn or whatever. And it's like you see all these memes of people like I'm like, man, are are any of these people actually like staying up until two o'clock in the morning and building something, or are they just sitting on LinkedIn and posting about you know doing these things? Because it's like when you're actually in the shit. When you're in, the, sorry, when you're when you're like. And you're actually trying to build something, right? You don't have time to be like, everybody come and look at me and everything, right? Like, it's just whenever I see people doing that, I'm always questioning whether or not they're actually focused on building their product or if they're trying to focus on growing their own kind of brand or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's fine if that's what you're trying to do, but it's just not something I'm personally interested in. That's, that's what I've been learning as well. I've been kind of like learning more about philosophy nowadays. Or it's like, if you're always like kind of like broadcasting yourself that like, oh, look how hard I'm working, look how hard I'm hustling, you get like this like false sense of achievement to the point where you don't feel like doing the actual work because you've already got like the feeling of achievement without actually doing the work. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's. That's definitely a that's definitely a thing, right? If you want to get super meta about it, right? I mean, even just talking to you guys today and doing this podcast and everything, I'm gonna walk out and be like, "Oh, cool, we did this podcast. That's great." But mm-hmm. I've got code that needs to get written for this other project too. That I'm <laughs> writing, and that's the stuff that's actually gonna, you know, hopefully generate some revenue and everything. So keep me from having to dra- dra- drain my life savings too much. But mm-hmm. yeah, those vanity metrics, it's definitely you know that that little dopamine hit you get from a little bit of tension is definitely definitely strong oh i've i've been i've actually done the vanity metric and i'm like look we're doing so much great vanity metric i'm like well did we really like is that really part of our thing that we built and i'm like no not really <laughs> well, well, the thing, the, 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 yeah i mean that's the thing right those vanity metrics they feel nice and so you're like all right yeah i grew this to make this meet up to ten thousand people or whatever but like mm-hmm. meanwhile you go and like the same 30 people are showing up to every meeting, you know? And so it's like, ultimately you're not having, you know, it's like, sometimes it's a little tough to look at the real metrics. I mean, I mean, we're kind of talking about a little bit about product stuff and like, that's, what's really important, right? It's like, don't just look at the data that's going to make you feel good, right? Look at the things that are actually, Mm -hmm. you know, important to your business or important to your customer base or whatever, you know? So it's like, now it's like driving revenue is a big pro is a big thing that I have to do so that I can, you know, put food on the table. And so that's what a lot of the things that I'm doing are going to be measured around is like, okay, did we get money from doing this thing? And if not, mm-hmm. like, let's figure out something else, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sweet. So, Andrew, what's going on in your life? Other so, than um, hanging out and building new stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always, I, I'm, so I've started learning how to play piano, which has been fun. I played a little bit as a kid and not enough to say that I can play piano. So I'm trying to pick it up now and I've got a five-year-old daughter and she's, you know, you might've heard her playing earlier, but she's kind of starting to figure it out too. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a good family thing. I tend to, so I tend to pick up weird hobbies and focus on them really like 
just really focus on them when there's big life transitions that are happening. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know if you guys do this. You guys probably didn't know this about me, but like, I love juggling. And so it's like, juggling, I, I, interesting. yeah. And I'll juggle like torches and like all sorts of stuff. Right. Like I've got, I'll send you guys some videos later of me actually doing that or I'll play like Stardew Valley or whatever. It's like, I just get really hyper-focused on something. So right now it's been, uh, the playing the piano and my buddy of mine actually kind of makes fun of me a little bit. So I don't know if you guys are big, have you, if you guys have seen parks and recreation. Uh-huh. Um, so when Ben loses his job, he starts, he does this like claymation or whatever. Right. <laughs> and then he spends all of his time building the claymation and he's like, Oh, you're going to love this. It's amazing. He plays it. And it's like 10 seconds of a claymation video. Right. And he's like, Oh, I'm going to tell you all about my claymation. It's going so well. And then he like, realizes that he needs to change his life because this claymation thing was not the answer <laughs> you know it's playing it's piano is my claymation right so my buddy is always like hey how's your claymation going like talking about my piano playing you know but hey it's been going pretty good and my daughter if, if i can get my daughter to start getting an interest in music and wanting to play and everything i think that's a good thing that comes out of it Mm-hmm. Do you guys, you guys play, I so you got like a little drum kit and you got guitars and stuff behind you, German. Yeah. You so I play the, mainly the bass and some guitar. That's my wife's drum set. So. I have a cool. little bit of guitar, but it's been, it's been a while. <laughs> I'm kind of rusty. <laughs> yeah. I just picked up my guitar the other day to play it. And I was like, man, I am like awful at this. I'm much better at piano than I am at, at guitar. It's, just, it's never clicked. But it's cool learning, yeah. learning a new skill, you know, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're spend so much time on the computer. It's like it's very easy to like sit on the computer all day and then go watch TV and then go play video games. And you just spent like all your time just like sitting around staring at a rectangle box. Right. Yeah. I always have this envision in myself if somebody was looking at me and they couldn't see my what's on my screen. Right. Like, what does it look like my body is doing and my brain is doing? And it's just me just every day. just staring at a screen and then go into another seat and then just staring at the screen. <laughs> so playing the piano is nice because it just feels like I'm doing something else, you know, and then I play ice hockey also twice a week. So that's, that's helpful. Your games are like in the middle of the night though. Yeah, man. I, well, I played like, the game last night. At, my game last night was at nine o'clock at night. It wasn't too bad, but I've gotten on the ice at 1130 at night and then come off at one o'clock in the morning and then gone to work the next day. And, it's rough but how do you do um, it because like if i work out at night let's say i go for a run like at 9 p.m i'm not sleeping i'm just gonna lay there in bed awake because i'm like energized yeah no it's awful like it's i will lay in bed until two o'clock in the morning when i finally like start to doze off to me i'll actually just sleep in a separate room so i'm not tossing and turning and everything so i just know it's gonna be like that right like that Mm -hmm. that late night exercising is not great for your sleep cycles but (laughs) i have kind of an addiction to playing so it's like if i don't play i don't feel healthy you know and so it's like it's kind of worth it but yeah, the, the sleep deprivation is probably also not worth it. So we'll see. Definitely. Well, speaking of sleep deprivation, so if I was going to say, like, interject and say what's new with my life, what going on is so my daughter was born two months ago, about two months. It's about to be two months. I haven't really slept since. But uh, yeah, now we have two kids. I've uh, been on parental leave for like the past eight weeks. Trying to be, I thought I was going to be super productive during the leave. I wasn't. The first few weeks, I started building a bunch of stuff. And like after the fourth, after the fourth week, I'm like, I don't feel like doing anything. Uh, so <laughs> I've literally been sitting here playing Age of Empires and playing music for like the past four weeks. So go back to work on Monday. So we'll see how that goes. So you're not, so you're not building an app for acquisition then anymore for <laughs> your fraternity leave, right? <laughs> I got, I got lazy. I don't know why. It's just like for me, it's like 
So I, I have a problem with actually taking a break from doing things. So like I'm the type of like, was it like, I think I shared a while ago at some point I had three separate jobs, three separate full-time jobs mm-hmm. for no good reason other than I just wanted to stay busy. And um, yeah, so I've always have a trouble. I've always had trouble like taking a break with stuff. So this is like the first time I'll say I haven't absolutely done nothing for at least a month, which is like the first break I've taken in years. That's good though, man. You got to recharge. I mean, it's because we had started Rusty Box at the same time that my daughter was born, and it's mm-hmm. th- that sleep deprivation hits you. I mean, you're saying like, you're saying like, I don't know why. Yeah, I lost my interest in it or whatever. And it's like when you got a kid and an infant, like that's why, you know, it's that's that's tough. Yeah, I mean the first one was easy, right? Because it's like just the baby. They sleep, they eat. There's not much for you to do as a dad other than change their diapers here and there. That takes like three minutes at a time. Uh, mm-hmm. but now with two kids, it's like you have the baby and now you have the toddler who wants to play all the time. So it becomes like a, a, you have no rest whatsoever. Cause okay, baby's resting, baby was with the mom eating, and all of a sudden, like your toddler's like play, just go to my room and play, and then you're like, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah man that's a lot of work it's we're, we're i think we're one and done so it's yeah. the multiple kids seems like it's definitely a, a challenge you know i've got friends with four and five kids and i'm like man oh, i don't geez. know how you guys do it like maybe if you stagger it enough one can help the oldest can help the youngest but yeah, yeah it's that's wild man well congrats yeah what'd you well, name her bless your speed. oh anna anna yeah like from Easy for her to learn how to spell. <laughs> Just A N A. I don't know how the Anna from Frozen spelled. Is it two N's? I don't know, actually. I don't know. No idea. So I've been lucky I've been able to avoid the Disney stuff so far. Oh dude, I I, I've literally watched Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. So he'll literally ask, Can I watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? Can I watch Mickey Mouse Roasted Racers? Mickey Mouse Funhouse. There's different ones. There's they're all Mickey Mouse, but there's different variations of it. Yeah. Um, and he has like They'll be like, no, I don't want to watch that. And then we go through like a phase where we watch Bluey like 24-7. Even though I'm not going to lie. When the new episode, when new season of Bluey came out, we watched it without him because we wanted to watch it ourselves. So. <laughs> yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with Bluey. I love Bluey, but I've noticed if my daughter watches too much, she starts to pick up some of the crappy attitude a little bit. And so it's like, we're like, all right, we got to cut back on this a little bit, you know, but I love Bluey. I don't know. So I know they released the latest season in Australia. Is it, is it here now? Yeah, it's here now. The one where the, they finally introduced the aunt. Cool. Well, it sounds like I'll be watching Bluey and then dealing with the, with the aftermath. Consequences. Yeah. Such a great show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. It was awesome talking to you, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks guys. I appreciate y'all having me on and, sharing some of the story and everything if people love to cook go and check out recipebox.com search for recipe box on the app store i'm not involved with it anymore but we want to see the product continuing to grow and doing well for emails so go download it and give it a shot and give it five stars on the app store will do for sure thanks for dining with us on code chefs we hope we satisfied your hunger. For show notes and more insider info on today's topic, visit our website at www.codechefs.dev. Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh, check, please.